0: Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome to
1: another installment of our bi-weekly institutional client call series featuring leading investors and strategists across J.P. Morgan Asset Management. My name is Keith Cahill, and I lead the North America Institutional Business here at J.P. Morgan. I first want to say a big thank you to all of our clients that have continued to engage with us on these calls. Week in and week out throughout this crisis, the audience for these calls has really blown away my expectations with repeat listeners from everywhere, from the largest public and corporate pension plans to investment consultants, insurers, endowments, and foundations. And so we will make sure we keep at it, working to ensure we can provide insightful thought-provoking content that helps our clients solve their investment challenges. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome my colleague and friend, Anton Pill, our global head of alternatives. Anton brings a very unique perspective as head of one of the largest and most diverse managers of alternative investments on a direct basis in areas such as real estate, infrastructure, transportation, hedge funds, and parts of the private equity and private credit markets. But he also has a view into more niche private equity, private credit and hedge fund opportunities through our hedge fund solutions and private equity businesses that invest in third party managers. The old adage goes that if you only have a hammer, every problem and opportunity looks like a nail. Well, that saying doesn't apply here as Anton has a whole toolbox full of potential solutions and perspectives to draw upon. In terms of format, I'll spend 20 minutes or so asking Anton some questions. And trust me, when I say this, nothing is off limits when we're talking to Anton. So, Anton, thank you again for joining us. It has been quite the few months in the public markets, and most of our listeners have been stomaching the lurches and volatility in their portfolio's performance. How have alternative asset classes and our alternative teams reacted to the pandemic?
2: Well, thanks, Keith. It's great to be here and maybe worth walking through a little bit how we've approached this as this pandemic started unfolding. As you can imagine, our first reaction was to make sure that our people and our investors were safe and could continue to operate, and equally importantly, that they could continue to preserve value in our clients' investments. And it didn't really change how we worked. It obviously changed where we worked. And we had test drove a number of work-from-home strategies prior to actually kind of going full steam ahead, sort of on an overnight basis from our day-to-day operations standpoint. And from a technology standpoint, we're pretty much lucky. I just did a survey for the team and the team views itself just as productive working from home as working from the office. So I think that transition, very happy with that. Stepping back and looking at the alternatives business, clearly we're not totally immune from the pain from the market ball, but I do think that in general, the alternative asset classes have been pretty good at doing what they were supposed to do, which was to diversify clients' performance. And I think it's actually proven itself that the growing allocations that we're seeing globally from investors to different alternative sub asset classes have done sort of what they were intended to do in people's portfolios. And actually, it's kind of interesting when you step back, some of the underlying asset classes have actually done quite well. You know, if I think of a number of our hedge funds, our infrastructure strategies, a number of our core real estate strategies, many of those strategies are up for the year, some are flat for the year, even private credit strategies are doing reasonably well. And so I think as an overall asset class, I think it's delivering a degree of stability that I think clients were hoping to get into their overall portfolios. And I think that is going to be very helpful. And I think we're going to require a lot more of that in the future, as well. Part of that, obviously, is because especially we do a lot of real assets and a lot of real asset strategies at the end of the day, they are supported by long-term contracts, right? Whether they be leases or charters or regulatory set electricity or water rates, the bond-like nature of these contractual payments ultimately means that performance should be reasonably well. And If you look at bond
1: performance, a lot of these assets have kind of kept in line with that. All right. I think that's a good intro. Let's dig a little deeper. So you started out mentioning preserving value investments, and I think that's one of those things that sounds a lot easier than it is in practice. Talk to us about that. How does it work in practice, or has it worked with our teams?
2: Yeah, look, we've been somewhat fortunate. We've been somewhat anxious, as most of you know, about a potential turn in the credit cycle, and we've been trying to prepare for that now for some time. It would be unfair to suggest that we had some sort of insight about a pandemic causing a potential unwind in credit. But that had done a number of things for us. It meant that we were pretty much ready for when there was a credit shock. And so immediately started stress testing all the investments we've had, and more importantly, the leverage that we've had across our portfolios. So in general, we're more of a core-like manager in almost every strategy that we do. So we weren't sort of caught over our skis on the leverage side. So that was sort of step one, check out our leverage, where are we in leverage, cross everywhere, stress test, assume your cash flows go to zero if you're in retail, assume your cash flows get cut in half if you're in the business that's just making widgets and really stress test how bad can this get and do we have enough liquidity and do we have the lines of credit in place to actually support ongoing support of our businesses. The interesting thing is we didn't have to draw lines of credit unlike many others, because we weren't that close to the edge that we were concerned that we would be tripping all kinds of covenants that wouldn't allow us to have access to our lines if we didn't need them. So that was sort of the immediate portfolio management reaction met with risk daily. We had multiple calls across all of alternatives, investment, chief investment personnel on an almost daily basis comparing notes. What are you seeing in real estate? What are you seeing in the hedge fund industry? What are you seeing in CNBS and sort of comparing notes real time, as well as doing that together with the broader equity and fixed income teams, also on a every other day basis as well. And we then actually also on the real asset side, we obviously are a big player in real estate, went through each of our investment properties and made sure that we had very asset-specific precautions in place, whether it's cleaning procedures and following local government guidance. We have two warehouses in Wuhan. I mean, literally in the midst of all of this, one is a refrigerated warehouse and we were supplying food for the residents of Wuhan. Another was an e-commerce warehouse that was providing sort of basic essentials. So kind of making sure that the properties we were managing were being managed appropriately with what's going on and making sure we were communicating the real-time data to a lot of clients who were requesting it so they would understand kind of what was going on. It was fascinating to watch from sort of my seat watching out towards the client base. And I would say globally, it looked very similar. 75, 80% of the clients very much fell in the analysis camp of, I want to wait and see how this plays out. This is a high degree of uncertainty. I want to do a lot of work here, understand my asset allocation, understand the impacts of what's going on in my portfolios. And then you had another sort of subset of clients called the other 20% that were actually kind of the inverse, who were sort of, I've been waiting for something like this to happen. What are we going to do? And they were very anxious. Like is it today? Are we doing something now? Are we going to do something tomorrow? So that was a bit fascinating to react to that as well from clients. I don't know if you saw that similarly in the heat that you were in case.
1: Yeah, listen, I think there's certainly no one size fits all institution, right? We work with clients from 401k plans to complex health systems and pension funds. But I would say broadly, we saw institutions hunker down and really start to focus on executing the day-to-day blocking and tackling of their system, whether that be a retirement system, you know, thinking about making sure their systems were set up and ensuring that everyone had work-from-home capability. I think broadly, you saw institutions look to their liquidity position. And for some, it was certainly more challenging than others. But we saw people really try to buckle down on liquidity, make sure they had the liquidity they needed currently and could meet future liquidity needs. I'd say we certainly saw clients look at the sudden imbalance in their asset allocation and start thinking about both how and when to rebalance. And then I'd say as things settled, we saw many clients, to your point, start looking through that opportunity and start picking through a little bit of the rubble. And you know, I'd say that's probably the phase that we're in now. Yep. So I think this call is probably helpful. But I am certain that our audience is much more interested in your opinion than mine. So let me get back to my question. So let's think about after you sort of batten down the hatches on preserving value, what comes next, right? You've got the advantage of being able to look across all of our investment teams, like you pointed out. Are you seeing a shift from defense to offense? And if so, where are you seeing it?
2: Absolutely. It's definitely much about offense now. It's not to say things aren't going to get worse in certain segments. Definitely things are going to get worse in the second half and a number of segments that we can talk about a little bit later. But there's a number of things that are actually quite urgent to do because the opportunities are not going to last. So in my mind, as I think about the next steps here of how do you deal with this from an investment standpoint, I think there's really sort of four phases of investment from an alts perspective that I think about that kind of from a roadmap perspective or from a timing perspective that I view as playing out. I think the first thing and we're in the midst of this right now is making sure you look for these liquid dislocations, these disconnect in liquid markets versus private markets. And a lot of those disconnects have already started sort of collapsing and closing. So they were very interesting opportunities two, four weeks ago. But frankly, the massive amount of Fed money that's been thrown at the broader bond market has really collapsed a number of these opportunities. But to me, that's fairly urgent for clients who want to be somewhat opportunistic here. It's fairly urgent. And think of that as things like REIT strategies, right? So there was a significant dislocation between REIT valuations and actual private assets on the ground. And when those sort of disconnects got as wide as 40 or 50%, that was a clear value signal uh, between sort of public and private markets. I think you still are seeing a lot of that in the converts market today, sort of massive converts issuance, not enough people to absorb that supply. And so you're seeing this sort of disconnect in the liquid market that isn't going to last. And those are the markets that I'm very focused on right now because those tend to normalize with liquidity. So you kind of expect in the next two, three, four months, those markets will be kind of fully functional and operational and reflect relative value correctly. After that sort of, and the second phase of that is what we're working on also right now, which are really more the distressed, broken deal type way of thinking. Like there's things right now that are broken, you've got to take advantage of in the sense that people need bridge financing, dip financing, broken deal finance. And I think we have a little bit more time for that, but that's the sort of phase that's just beginning now. And I think the third phase is what I would refer to as sort of eventually people are going to need liquidity for whatever reason, and they're going to start selling assets that are core assets that they'll probably end up selling at value-add type returns. There will be secondary sales of private equity and opportunities where people are trying to rebalance their portfolios from a risk perspective. And I think that sort of phase of investing will be towards the end of the year, even Q1, Q2 of next year. That'll take some time to play out. And that'll be a time when you want to think about secondary private equity, things like that. And then lastly, the fourth phase of this, which I wouldn't underestimate, which all of us should be thinking about in the back of our minds, is with all this intervention from the Fed, there's fundamental shifts in the rate market in the U.S. Rates are going to stay low for very long periods of time. I mean, Bob Michael, our head of fixed income, thinks it's very feasible. The rates in the us will be at zero. And we need to start thinking about if you're running something that's got a discount model to sort of minimize your future liabilities, you better start thinking about how are you going to adjust for that longer term. But to me, that's more of a structural question that's sort of in phase four and also play a key
1: role in that, by the way. That's helpful. I think we talked about a lot there. It's a lot to unpack. So why don't we go a little bit deeper asset class by asset class? And so I'd like to ask you to tell us what you're seeing on the ground real time, where your teams are seeing opportunity and where they're seeing pain. Why don't we start out with private credit, which some might say is seeing the most extreme dislocation, and we know it's been a huge focus for our institutional clients over the last several years. How do we see that allocation evolving, and where are you seeing the most compelling dislocations within the private credit markets?
2: Look, this is the one area of the market that generally, if you're waiting for the bailout, it's not going to come. It's private. It's not part of the public markets. Fed hasn't crossed really in size. The rubric on of will help bail out highly levered companies. By definition, a lot of private credit and direct lending were done to entities or institutions that were more levered than they probably should have been going into a crisis. So the first thing I would caution on the private credit size is it's going to get worse. It takes time to run out of cash and actually default. Many people don't have to pay payments and have quarterly payments or semi-annual payments and will default. So I wouldn't be surprised that we'll end up seeing defaulted assets get as high as a trillion dollars. And to give you a sense, that's four times the amount of distressed debt dry powder that's out there. So be aware that there's a supply-demand issue here that's going to be a serious problem longer term. Moody's already is forecasting default rates of over 17% in the next 12 months. All of a sudden, everybody's going to figure out that a triple C company really has a one in four chance of defaulting. That that, that wasn't a theoretical piece of math from twenty years ago. Hmm. But that's also the opportunity set. I think you're going to see that the stressed opportunity set in private debt is probably about a trillion there. You're going to have a trillion dollars of fallen angels syndicated loans. There's another two and a half trillion. That's longer term. The bulk of the opportunity, and you've got to be prepared for that. There are areas you should absolutely avoid: structured credit in general, CLOs. They're going to generally blow past their triple C exposure limits, and covenants are going to make those entities highly restricted in what they can do. So you will find low-rated CLO tranches. I would expect came there to get materially worse as defaults actually materialize. The flip side is we've been providing financing for a number of mid-market companies who are just unlucky. In some cases, they had debt come due two weeks ago, and they need $30 million to just have a bridge loan. And it's shocking. If you're a company that's under half a billion in size, good luck, banks aren't really open. The private credit guys that were there in great times are long gone because they're focusing on their big private credit position that they already have. And that's right now the real opportunity today is in these sort of mid-market companies that need help. And similarly, the whole notion of broken finance, MES deals, we're working quite hard. As a large real estate player, we've been getting phone calls on people who need to roll either first lien mortgages or MES loans on construction sites that are almost complete. And to give you a sense, I mean, some of that paper that his we probably would have traded like LIBOR plus two or three, even six months ago today Repricing, are pricing and we're giving people pricing at like LIBOR plus nine, LIBOR plus 11. Some of the sort of the bridge financing that we're providing mid-market companies is probably at 13, 14%. So the Fed's help isn't going to trickle through down to those levels. And it'll take, there's more supply of that coming than there's ultimately going to be capital available. And that opportunity set is predominantly U.S. Europe is a little bit slower. And that, simply because the governments have been much more aggressive at supporting companies and paying payroll for companies and paying company expenses that you just don't need to default. It's a little different story in the U.S. So that's sort of on the private credit side, the opportunity today, mid-market company, sort of special sits in distressed type financings, and probably on the real estate side where people need this kind of bridge finance. And I expect both of those to continue to grow fairly significantly.
1: So you touched on the debt side of real estate. Let's shift to the equity side. We are one of the largest managers of direct real estate in the U.S. and abroad. Tell us what you're seeing there, opportunities and pain again. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. We have this
2: dashboard that we monitor our collections quasi-real-time across our portfolio buildings across the world. And there's sort of been surprises, good and bad on both sides. I'd say the first, probably on the good side, We've been somewhat surprised on the multifamily side, where collections on people who are renting continues to be very strong. I mean, on average, we're probably getting collections that are sort of in the low 90% across the U.S. and in the rest of the world. And those might be three, four percentage points below where they would have been historically and not a material shift yet in sort of default rates picking up or anything like that. And the same is true in office. I would say that there are opportunistic tenants that have tried to tell us they won't pay their bill. And then we're equally opportunistic back. And depending on who you are, if we believe you can pay, then we'll have a slightly different conversation than the people who can't. And obviously, if you're the headquarters of a retailer, you probably are having real struggles. If you're a law firm and you're just trying to see whether you can get away without paying, we'll put your boxes outside on the stoop on Monday. And frankly, it's building by building, tenant by tenant, these conversations. And I think retail has been really hurt. Even in our top-notch malls, our collections are in sort of the 20% range. And we've got slightly better collections of places where we've got a grocery anchored location because everybody still needs groceries. So those locations are more like 50%. And frankly, national chains generally have been paying the bills, but it's sort of those local players that have not been. And we get it. Our malls are slowly reopening and we want those tenants to be operational and up and running. And we're working with them to try to figure out how to get this resolved and help them through this in our interest also that tenants stay there. I would say that sort of the longer term shift in real estate, it's too early to tell. The firm keeps asking us like, so people want more real estate or less real estate, right? There's sort of two sides of an argument. Less dense, you need more space. You have more people working from home, you need less space. Sort of that tug of war is still playing out in real time. And I think it will take a
1: year or two to play out. Interesting, you know, on that point, there seems to be equally compelling arguments on each side of that, right? Yep. Those who say, okay, office occupancy will never be the same. And those who make the opposite argument that, wait a second, you know, people on top of one another on open floor plan seating, they're going to spread out and you're going to need more space and you're going to need suburban space. And so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out.
2: And by the way, we're making that bet now. We just entered a joint venture with American Homes to build 2,500 new single family homes across the country for rent, dedicated for rentals. I think in general, the rental market is going to continue to grow and millennial who is living in the loft and is now sort of running out of space because the kids are driving them crazy while they work from home. who don't have the money to buy a house, they're going to need something in a place to rent. So I do think we're going to see some of these dynamics of going into having more space. I don't think that's going to go away. So we are implicitly betting on that on the real estate side. Interesting. All right. Why don't we talk about infrastructure and transport? Yeah. So I think... Infrastructure's been fascinating because it's a bit of a tale of two cities. True infrastructure in the sense that it's not GDP sensitive, it's business as usual. And most of you are still taking showers and, you know, plugging in your TV or using the internet and you need the power or the water. And so all of that ends up has been remarkably steady and kind of unexciting, which, by the way, is fantastic. It's exactly what I was be hoping be the case. Where on the infrastructure side things have been a bit more dicey has obviously been on sort of slightly more risky assets, more GDP core plus type assets like airports and ports. Now, for us, that's a fairly small allocation of what we do. But there we have to actively work with local governments and airlines or port to figure out what these entities are going to look like longer term. We've got staying power. We do think that most of the assets we own are sort of strategically located and we don't think they're still going to be needed by society. But there is clear disruption there on what's taking place. And the other place that because we are quite focused on the ESG issues that we really don't have that much exposure, obviously is the energy space. And I think The two big lessons learned in infrastructure have been people that got overexposed in energy and people who got overexposed to emerging markets. We've maintained all along that managing emerging markets infrastructure is just extraordinarily difficult. And I think that that's become even more clear today. Transport has been remarkably stable. I mean, our ships are in use. Leases are all getting paid. Interestingly enough, even though we only own a handful of airplanes, they're all getting paid. I kind of joke that it's quite important to have the name of a country in the name of your airline today versus where maybe perhaps a year ago that happened. And we've seen a number of distressed opportunities actually pop up on the shipping side that actually we've been able to benefit from. I will say that our desire to get involved in aircraft, we've been shown portfolios of aircraft. I think it's too early. The residuals on most of these aircraft, it's just extraordinarily difficult to predict what residual values are going to be without some semblance of what air traffic is going
1: to be several years from now. And I think it's just too early. So you have time. Yeah. Touching back on the infrastructure piece, you mentioned the ESG and the E side of it. We had the leaders of our infrastructure business on an internal call this morning, and we had this fascinating conversation about the importance of the G and the S that's come to light in a pandemic. And you have to remember that these are businesses that you're operating; they're your assets, but they're businesses, and you know the governance of those businesses and the S, in terms of how your workers are treated and taken care of, becomes so important in this kind of a pandemic.
2: Absolutely. I mean, for example, you shouldn't cut off people's water just because they haven't paid the water bill, right? And that sounds kind of obvious, but in normal times, you do eventually cut people's waters off. In the times of pandemic, those are the types of things you want to work with society to kind of smooth over through a pandemic.
1: So in the interest of time, let's do a little bit of a lightning round here. Let's talk about hedge funds. We all know that hedge funds broadly have struggled to earn their fees in the minds of many institutions. What are we seeing in 2020?
2: So look, vol is generally a hedge fund's friends. And I would say if you actually ran a hedge fund with the word hedge in it, a hedge fund, you actually did reasonably well. I mean, most of a lot of our hedge funds and fund of hedge funds have actually done quite well. And actually, a lot of them are up for the year. A relative value credit with a great location, there's plenty of sort of dislocations for relative value to make sense. Macro, as long as it's thematic, still a big fan, right? So sort of the changes in healthcare, the changes in tech continue on, and having sort of disproportionate exposure to those sectors make a lot of sense. Having more factor driven MA type momentum strategies, those are all off the table. Like, the world's just way too choppy. Not enough history here to really use those as predictive models of the future. And just remember what hedge funds are supposed to do. Hedge funds, ultimately, you're supposed to deliver cash plus three or four Cash is effectively close to zero. So if you have expectations that your hedge funds are going to be double digits, you've either got to adjust your expectations. Hedge funds should be delivering four to five and low vol. And generally, if you've been following that formula, it's been a nice
1: counterbalance of people's portfolio. So you've got hedge funds on the cash plus three to four. Let's go to the opposite of the spectrum. Private equity, you know, you're taking yep. on that liquidity precisely to generate better than public equity market returns. What are we seeing there?
2: Yeah, look, and that's where we're gonna see the true ability of people to manage companies versus their ability to do financial engineering. I think companies that are highly levered that were running close to the edge and using sort of cov light documents to kind of get beyond the degree of leverage that could be supported by the castle of underlying companies, I think we're gonna see continued pain for those overlevered companies through the end of the year, as cash flows are going to continue to get squeezed. And the reality of a, a slower consumer trickles down into the real economy and into the real cash flow of these businesses. So I think the opportunity sets there, there's going to be a lot of pain still to come and expect performance in general of the asset class to be akin to that of equities with what I would probably argue is a slower rebound, especially if you have energy exposure and hospitality exposure, which quite a few players did. It's not all bad news, by the way. Many of you will probably find out, or some of you will find out that you probably have too much of it. And guess what? Then you'll be a seller and that'll be the interesting opportunity. I think secondary private equity is going to be a great opportunity later in the year, early next year. I've already seen pools for sale that are down 20, 30% from where the marks are. And that'll
1: probably go a little bit lower, but I think that's where the real opportunity is going to lie. Yeah. Okay, take yourself out of reality for a bit, Anton, and picture it's 2030, and you're looking back at the COVID crisis 10 years ago. What did we learn, and how can we apply that knowledge and insight now? Yeah, I'm trying to think, like,
2: is that getting into DeLorean or getting out of the DeLorean and we're just back to the future?
1: But anyways, I, I figured you were somebody who regularly just thinks 10 years ahead and yeah. is in the future. So
2: <laughs> I probably don't need the car to do it. Um, look, I think there's a couple of things that I do think we'll look back on. And the first one is maybe not that obvious. A lot of people talk about ESG, and then they talk a lot about the E, and they talk a lot about the G. Not that many people talk about the S, because it's kind of squishy. Like no one it's society, like what do you do? I actually think in 10 years from now, when you look back, I'm going to be asking the question, and by the way, our hedge fund teams already have, like our hedge fund selection team, almost immediately, the first question we started asking hedge funds is if you take PPP money. And if you did, you're fired. That simple. we're going to learn a lot about companies and the ethics and morality of companies looking back to today, five years or 10 years from now. Because people are going to say, what did you do during the pandemic? And if your answer was, I couldn't care less. I cut the water off. I didn't help society. I didn't donate my blood testing machines because I thought it'd be a good idea to make my own. And like, these are going to be very interesting questions that I think we're going to be able to use to measure the S in ESG. So that's sort of one thing that. I'm very cognizant of. Did you take government aid? How did you do it? Everybody's sort of knee-jerk reacting right now, but I think these things are going to become very important when we look back. Secondly, I think it's going to prove again that income is king. The Fed's not going away. Don't underestimate their buying power. So I think even though real estate may scare people because it's a real asset and all my these could be levered and like, are people really going to move back into an office? But Income-generating assets that are, whether they're part assets or whether they're liquid assets, I think income is going to continue to stay important. And then lastly, maybe, just maybe, don't get too dogmatic on U.S. rates not turning negative. I don't think they will. But boy, I'm definitely preparing as if they would and what that would mean for sort of the assets that we manage. And I think a lot of people would rather just pretend like it can't happen. (laughs) I would just say that a lot of European pensions I spoke to three years ago had the same view and within 12 months were kind of regretting it. So just be
1: prepared. Preparation is king. And really, again, back to that example of this morning, I think your point on the S of ESG, you know, I think in so many cases, whether it's infrastructure or real estate or other alternative asset classes, your community or your regulator or your municipality has a direct impact on your ending rate of return. And so the way you treat those stakeholders will definitely have an impact on the return absolutely to generate. Totally great. We send our best wishes for health and safety to you, your families and colleagues.
0: For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts? Figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, Credit and accounting implications, and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. JP Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of JP Morgan Chase and Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by JP Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https://am.jpmorgan.com slash global, slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities, in the United States, by JP Morgan Investment Management Inc. or JP Morgan Alternative Asset Management, Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, in Latin America, for intended recipients use only, by local JP Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by JP Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave RL, in Asia Pacific, APOC by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg number 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, JP Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association. Type II Financial Instruments Firm's Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55,143,832,080, AFSL 376,919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.